Good morning and welcome everyone. It is good to be able to greet you wherever you are. We so much look forward to gathering in person today with great plans, although I think there was a sense even amongst us here as we were planning that it was inevitable that we would go back into a lockdown at some stage and it probably happened later than I was even expecting. However, we've been here before, we know what to do, we know how to address this and we'll do the very best that we can. Let me ju just say though, thank you so much to all of those who embraced our plans for the 9 o'clock and the 10.45am service, including our Wacom team who've stepped up to the plate in that respect, but also the people who registered for the services. We found by the end of the week that the services were fully subscribed to, which meant people had <coughs> embraced the opportunity to connect and uh, moving ahead, if we ever come back, <laughs> well, when we come back, that's a terrible thing to say, when we come back, uh, we might look at using the system of registering then too, because it seems that it's an opportunity for people to know that there is space and not be guessing whether there will or there won't. So, well done. Uh, we did also plan, given that, that we were going to have two services fairly close together, to uh, have plans to pair the service down to just a couple of songs at the start, a service anchor, a message which was to be, for me at least, a little compressed. I heard a preacher once say that every, every preacher has an internal clock that they work to and I think that's probably true and I've had to try and make some adjustments to my internal clock. So all of the stories I was going to tell had to be pruned out of the sermon, but now we're back into some space where there's a bit of room. I can cut loose, but I won't do that um, today. Uh, we will turn to the Word in a few moments. We had planned too at our second service, our 10.45am service, to dedicate um, two young people amongst us, Francine and Emile's son Shalom and Grace and Nelson's son Tavish, and we've had to delay that again. I think this is the third or perhaps the fourth time. And so too for Luella Bremner, and Isabel and James LaFontaine will get there sometime. They might be six or seven by the time that happens, but that will be fine because we know that God has them in his hands and has placed them in families that love the Lord. And our role too is just to embrace and support them. We're going to also just look at our preaching schedule for the next few weeks because I suspect we might need to do some adjustment on that as well. Father's Day plans that we had may yet have to change. But we will be returning in a couple of weeks' time to our preaching from the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, importantly, because we want to finish what we began, but also because 1 and 2 Thessalonians speak to the hope that we have in uncertain and unchanging times. Over these past couple of weeks, we've deviated from the schedule while I've spoken on the context of coronavirus and where we as Christians have some uh, response to make uh, and where we might find God in the midst of this challenging time that we've experienced. A fortnight ago, I spoke about the topic of embracing and expressing our grief, a topic that we're going to come to a little bit today from a slightly different angle as we think about lament. Last week I addressed the question of what submitting to the authorities looks like, especially in an environment where submitting might ultimately impinge upon our consciences. And this question, as I've thought about it through the week, is an increasingly significant one, not only because we are called in the Scriptures to submit to one another and submit to authority, 
But I think critical as we see more and more noise being made in our community even now about excluding people from engagement if they consciously or conscientiously object to something. On this occasion, um, it might be a vaccination. On another occasion, it will be something else. And those who have a little bit of an eye to the persecution that Christians have faced in other countries and what I believe the scripture teaches will uh, together face down the track. Um, we're rightly concerned about some of the things that we're seeing now because patterns of behaviour that are established by governments now and communities now lay the foundations for widespread community acceptance of what passages like Revelation chapter 13 verse 17 speaks about in the future. And I encourage you to read a little around that if you're not quite sure what I'm referring to there because uh, we need to be uh, mindful of ha how what happens now does impact the future and what the Bible says about that. What I want to do today though is address a question that is usually trotted out in times of crisis, whether it be a flood or a famine or an earthquake or a tsunami or a pandemic and that is um, address the question, do these things come from God? What is God's purpose in this? And they might be on the lips of some Christians trying to make sense of their faith. This question or questions like them might be on the lips of some in our community poking fun at Christians saying, you know, if God's a God of love and care, why does he allow suffering in any shape or form, whatever that suffering might look like? And I'm sure too, as we come to this question, you've heard this expression, there's nothing new under the sun. And although our experience of a pandemic is something completely new to us, we've not experienced this in our lifetime. If we look back a little bit, not that many years before some of us, uh, there have been other pandemics. Uh, but we've used that word unprecedented to describe our experience when in actual fact what we're experiencing is not unprecedented at all. In fact, there are significant precedents through history. Pandemics were well known in the ancient world and without wishing to cast a fog of depression upon you today, uh, in the ancient world, some of those pandemics didn't just last for a year or 18 months or two years, they went on for decades. They happened in the broader context of a society that faced constant struggles with disease and contagion. There were no vaccines that they held out hope for. There was uh, uh, no scientifically based medical practice, no understandings of microbes or uh, viruses or disease and very, very rudimentary hygiene practices. I was totally blown away when uh, a group of us visited Bet in an ancient city in uh, Israel a few years ago to see the highly sophisticated plumbing associated with their public toilets. And in those times, the city did have literally public toilets. That's where everyone went to perform their ablutions. And it was just incredible. And I was fascinated because I've always been a bit interested in um, irrigation and, and water management, that sort of stuff. Just to see the pipework and the way that the toilets had been designed. It was very public, let me say. Um, but um, in those days, the ancient people had to share what was what we would now call toilet paper. In those days, a sponge on a stick. So just imagine what that would have been like and try and forget about that because I don't want you to focus on that for the rest of the message. Get that image out of your mind. 
but you can understand why it was that disease spread so readily and so easily. Between AD 165 and 189, a plague known as the Antonine Plague swept through the Roman Empire. It persisted for decades. And it's said that as it peaked in Rome, a city of about 1 million people, at its worst, around about 2,000 people a day died. Really significant numbers. And you can imagine the fear and the anxiety that would have permeated that society. They practiced social distancing just like we are. Those who could escaped to the country. Those who couldn't were advised by the medicos of the day to stuff their noses full of sweet-smelling perfumes and herbs and their ears as well, a bit like some sort of ancient mask. I'm not sure <laughs> that that's any better than what we've got to put up with. In AD 250, a far more deadly plague swept through the empire. This one was an Ebola-type plague, they believe, a, a, a hemorrhaging kind of virus. Uh, and it was documented by the Christian bishop Cyprian. Cyprian wrote about this plague and rather unfortunately for Cyprian, uh, his name was forever attached to it. So it was known as the Cyprian Plague. There's a warning for any would-be historians. Be careful what you write about. And it was actually worse than the Antonine Plague. Uh, many, many people died. And on each occasion, on those occasions and on other occasions, when plague swept through the populace, people asked the standard question, what have we done to offend the gods? What have we done to offend these gods that we worship? In some context, Christians were blamed because they had turned away from the gods and were worshipping another god. And in some contexts, Christians flourished, in fact, because the populace was so over the capricious and vexatious gods that they were worshipping, that they dumped them en masse and turned to the living God. Almost without exception, though, there was a line of causality drawn between their circumstances, i.e. we're in this terrible situation, and somehow a, a connection to the gods. And Christian leaders at the time are not immune to blaming the pagans for their shared experience either. Some Christian apologists said that, you know, the reason we're suffering these plagues is because you are worshipping demons and you need to turn away from them. Uh, some Christian apologists actually argue that the plagues were a sure sign of the end, a kind of an uh, apocalyptic portend of the end time. So repent and worship the true God before it's too late. And we've got to ask the question, is there any validity in those kinds of responses? Uh, because even in our days, the usual band of suspects uh, trot out at times like this and say, you know, this is why we're suffering this, this is why this is happening. God is punishing us, God is rebuking us, God is refining us, God is calling us back to pure worship. Uh, God is doing stuff and we don't necessarily know exactly what. Um, and so sitting underneath that is this question, did God send the coronavirus pandemic for a purpose? It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? And I was looking forward to preaching this same message at night. Originally, the plan was to do it next week and stop at this point and say to the congregation, as we're in the habit of doing at night, just take a few moments to address that question. Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, what, is your, what are your thoughts? Did God send the coronavirus for a purpose? Is there something going on here that we could find answers for? Because we are hungry for answers, aren't we? We're inclined to be hungry for answers. 
And one of the reasons that we're inclined to be hungry for answers is because we've been educated in a, a, a rationalistic worldview which says we should be able to explain stuff. We've been educated to be able to see cause and effect. The reason we're sick is because of these microbes or this virus or whatever and if we apply the medication this will be the outcome. If I was to stand here with a ball and drop it I understand how gravity works, that whole cause and effect kind of a thing. Our world operates rationally, we like to think. And we don't sit easily with mystery. Our whole system of education has been built around this idea that everything can be explained and everything needs an explanation. But what if there wasn't an answer? Can you sit with that? What if there wasn't an answer to that question, did God send the coronavirus? What if there wasn't an answer to the question, what is God up to? What if we didn't know? What if we don't know? What if we can't know? It's rather interesting if we go through the scriptures that whenever the people of Israel found themselves in strife, as they did time and time again, eventually, even if it came after a period of discomfort, they asked the question, why has God done this or why has God allowed this? And on many occasions, they too could see a direct link between their circumstances and God's activity, either warning them or chastising them or restoring them or blessing them. And on the basis of that data alone, if, uh, if that was all we looked at in the scriptures, then we might be inspired to ask those rationalistic based questions, you know, what is God doing? But let me ask you again, what if there weren't answers? Or what if the answers that we got were not the right answers? The poet T.S. Eliot wrote these enigmatic words. He said, and I'll read this twice just to capture this. And you have the advantage of being able to rewind and catch it later anyway. He wrote these words, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope in the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith... But the faith and love and hope are all in the waiting. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and love and hope are all in the waiting. I rather think that Eliot has grasped or at least um, identified the risk that there is in grasping at rationalistic answers. We might ask the question, what is God up to? And we might get an answer, but would it be the right answer? We might ask the question and get an answer and put our hope in something, but would it be the right hope or hope in the right something? There's actually a number of places, as I've said, in the Bible where there's a direct correlation between the activity of the people or their experience and the activity of God. But there are other passages, and we have to be honest enough to admit this, which stand in jarring tension with the former. And those are the ones that we need to pay attention to now. In fact, they're the ones we probably should have been paying attention to long ago, because sometimes, no matter how much we might like an easy explanation to satisfy our need to understand, sometimes there is no answer just a deep mystery associated with who God is. 
I think um, one of the people who's been most helpful in, in framing my thinking about this is N.T. Wright, the English scholar who's written that in the face of crisis, in face of the crisis that this pandemic has thrown up for us, generating easy answers is not all that helpful and nor is it necessarily biblical. And what Wright argues is that we need to come back to that place that the scripture invites us to and visit passages of scripture that we have long ignored passages like the psalms passages like the book of job passages even like the book of ecclesiastes there's a winner if you ever want matt and i to preach through that matt can do that one um, i've done it before trust me it was hard work but it addresses some of the questions that uh, we need to think about even now not necessarily trying to find trite and easy answers. I've just been mindful in this last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of occasions and I can't remember who it was with but I was perhaps chatting to one of our staff or somebody I was with and they were relating a story, a story of something that had gone wrong, I don't know what it might have been, it could have been anything. Um, and, and I've said, oh, sorry. And they said, oh, no, 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 don't be sorry, you don't need to apologise. And it just struck me that there's two ways we can understand that word sorry, isn't there? Typically, we think of the word sorry, we say sorry when we feel we need to say, I'm uh, apologising for, for what's happened to you. But there's another way that the word sorry is used and it's a way of expressing empathy. Sorry. I'm sorry for your circumstance. I'm sorry for the situation that you're in. I'm sorry about the pain that you are experiencing. I want to empathise with you. And we don't sit easily with lament, do we? As I've said a couple of weeks ago, we don't do grief well. We want to move on. We want to get past that. But the scripture invites us to sit in this place of lament. And over these past 18 months or so, we really have been flying by the seat of our pants on many occasions in terms of what we have preached. But there have been a number of times where we've come back to this place through this season where we have deliberately engaged in lament. Uh, Matt started the service today with Psalm 46, which we spent time in last week, which just grounds us again in the things of God. But the Psalms, typically, if you have a look at them, are Psalms. There are many Psalms of lament. We spent a whole season working through some of those. We've spoken about that. We've plundered the scriptures that acknowledge the pain that there is in life the pain that there is in the world a pain that we can't pretend can be fixed with a band-aid pain that can't be satisfied with trite and easy answers they're scriptures that ask hard questions but don't provide the answers and that's hard for us to sit with because we want answers we want to know what the answer is but if we go to somewhere like psalm 6 for example the psalmist cries out and says to the lord my bones are in anguish my soul is in, uh, is in agony. How long, Lord? How long? And doesn't get an answer. Passages like Psalm 10, which the psalmist says, Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There's not an easy answer to that question. Passages like Psalm 13, in which the psalmist says to the Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And again, God doesn't immediately answer the question. Passages like Psalm 22, this one's a real problem. Uh, it's a psalm that was actually quoted by Jesus on the cross when he cried out to God, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear the mystery in that question? Even Jesus didn't know the answer. 
Even Jesus didn't know the full outworking of God's plan in that space. How did his death fit into that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many of the Psalms of Lament start off with cries of dereliction like that one, Psalm 22, and they end with faith and hope. But that's not the case in every Psalm. And part of the mystery of lament, part of the deeper uh, associations of lament is that we don't always know. And that there are things that God does, part of his plans, part of his character, part of his purpose that we will never know. And we can't know. There's much that he's revealed, let's be truthful. There's many things that he's told us about who he is, his character, his nature, his actions and his behaviour. But there are parts of God that we will never be able to fathom. And I rather think that that's a good thing. Because if we were able to do that, quite literally, we would be smarter than God. And I suspect part of our hunger in trying to find the answers actually is linked to something that happened way, way back there in Genesis when Adam and Eve decided they wanted to know what God knew. And that's been sitting in the human psyche ever since. And another part of this mystery of lament that I think is actually quite informative and we don't talk about all that often is that God laments too. Have you ever thought about that? God actually laments too. Have you, have you thought uh, beyond, you know, typically we think God knows everything, he's able to see everything in advance, he's all-powerful, he stands aloof from the troubles of the world. But actually, if you look at the scripture, you'll find that is not the case. If we have a look at uh, Genesis, um, back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, for example, God's response to the wickedness and rebellion and violence in the people he had created is described here. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That sounds a lot like some children I taught in school years ago. The Lord was grieved. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. You hear that lament? That God's heart was filled with pain. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find time and time again as the people turned their backs on God, as they chased after the gods of the nations... The Lord was grieved and the Lord lamented. And then when he came in person in the form of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, when Jesus was here as a man on the earth, he wept tears of grief as he stood outside the grave of his friend Lazarus. And not just because he was sad because of the loss of his friend Lazarus, but because he confronted death in all its ugliness. As I've shared with you um, previously, I think, and forgive me for retelling this story if I've told you before, one of the very first deaths I was occasioned to deal with as a pastor was that of uh, a two-year-old child. Uh, it was one of those days you're never going to forget in a hurry. It was an afternoon, a phone call came through from ED, the hospital. Um, little Oliver, his name was, had passed away. His mum is up at the hospital, could you come up? And so... I walked and it was only you know, a 10 minute walk I suppose if that, wondering what I was going to encounter in that moment when I walked into ED and to tell you the truth I'll never forget for as long as I live 
uh, the site that, uh, that, I, that I met. For here was the mum sitting with this child who, who had died. There's no um, soft way of saying that. Uh, this little boy who died in his sleep, totally unexpected. And she was holding him in her arms and she was rocking backwards and forwards and she was groaning. She was groaning in her grief. And uh, I'm so glad that in my innocence, I decided I wouldn't say anything, which was actually the best thing to say, and just sit there with her in that space. But she rocked backwards and forward, a mother cradling her little boy, groaning in the depths of grief. And then we come to somewhere like Romans chapter 8, verse 26, which is a verse we often use as an encouragement. But it's a verse which gives us in insight into the lament of God too. For Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness, but also intercedes for us. For when we are stuck for words and don't even know what to pray, the Spirit groans with words that cannot be expressed. A posture of lament. And perhaps it's not just about God giving words through the Spirit for prayer that we can't utter. It's actually God sitting with us by His Spirit in that place of lament, groaning and, and lamenting in that context of mystery. And so though it might be terribly unsatisfying for you this morning, and I'm sorry if it is, I'm not even going to try and answer the question, did God send the pandemic for a reason? Because I got no idea. Questions such as, has this happened to punish the world for wickedness? Or is this a sign sent by God of the looming end times? They make for interesting discussions. You can uh, sharpen your knives over that one if you like. But in all likelihood, they're going to provide unsatisfying and perhaps potentially even wrong answers. They're very much in line with what T.S. Eliot said. They might cause us to hope for the wrong thing. In fact... I'll be honest with you and say there have been times when people who've been trying to sort out difficult circumstances or events have said, you know, God must have allowed this for a reason or, you know, the, the one I kind of want to, can I say this, you, you, you want to rebuke someone that says, oh, God only takes the best, you know, if someone young dies. I get uncomfortable because it's a very short step from the question of why is this happening to the trite answers that we are so often dished up. It's not up to us to be able to explain everything and why. Can we even begin to explain what God is up to in Afghanistan right now? Can we begin to explain what's happening with the displaced Rohingya in the refugee camps in Bangladesh right now? Can we begin to explain why it is that some amongst us, you know, fine Christian men and women who've served faithfully end up sick with the same cancer as someone who's just lived a life of reckless abandon suffer with? How do we find answers to those questions? We can't. They're buried deep in the mystery of who God is and God's purposes. And there is and always will remain mystery in the will and purpose of God. But here's the promise of hope. As we embrace lament as we model our stance, seriously, as we model our stance on the stance of God who also laments, we actually have the opportunity to become lighthouses of hope. For in adopting a posture of lament, we admit 
that we don't understand everything that goes on around us. We don't have the capacity to explain everything that's taking place. But we do know that God is God. And we do know that God is a good God. And we do know that God is working out his plans for his glory. And we can sit faithfully and comfortably in that space. And as we do that, we discover new ways of living out the grace of God in our community and the world. We don't have to be those with all the answers. We don't have to be the ones who can trot around as though we know everything. We can actually be people of light and grace and hope and find new ways of being the people of God uh, in this hungry and desperate world looking for hope. That's the encouragement of lament. It's an uncomfortable, un uncomfortable place to be to some degree, but it actually is a place where there is hope. Let me pray that you're encouraged today and perhaps let go of some of those questions. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are so much bigger than us. We thank you, Lord, that there is so much that uh, will remain a mystery to us about you, your nature, your character, your purposes, your will and your plans. Because that means that you are God and we are not. Father, we acknowledge the tendency that we all have to try and grasp that which is yours. We want to know how things work. We want to plan. We want to control. We want to manipulate. We want to see outcomes. We think we know what is best and sometimes we pray even to that end. But today we once again would submit ourselves to you, to your will, to your purposes and where there is no answer, acknowledge with all humility Lord that it is all about you and not about us and that our desire ultimately is to glorify you in our posture of lament. Lord as a congregation today as we sense the loss and grief of not being able to meet as as we look forward to this next season without a lot of hope that we will be able to gather at least in the short term again we would affirm our trust in you our desire to worship you and the opportunity that you provide for us to be the people of God in the context wherever we might be and so father today fill us afresh with your spirit overflow us with your hope build up our faith and may the light of Christ shine from us we ask in Jesus name amen